title of our sermon this afternoon is Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Our text comes to us from Romans 11.36. Romans 11.36. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we come before thee, O Lord, asking for thy help as we hear the word preached. Lord, that thou wouldst speak to us by thy Holy Spirit. That our hearts would be enlivened, faith would be increased, joy and peace and understanding would be filled. Lord, to live for Thee is to live for Thy glory. It is to enjoy Thee. Enjoy Thee above all things, for Thou art the greatest being. Lord, I come weak and trembling to the task set before me. Help Thou me, O Father, to preach Thy Word, to apply it, to treat it as no mean task, but as the greatest of tasks. Help us to hear. Help us to understand, to follow. Lord Jesus, may our love for Thee increase, our desire to serve Thee increase, our understanding of the Scriptures increase, O Lord. Holy Spirit, Lead us, protect us from the evil one, that the word be not snatched from our hearts, but it would land on good ground, good soil, and increase 30, 60, and 100 fold. Help us in our unbelief as we look to thee, believe upon thee, and trust in thee. Help us to see thee as thou truly art, O Lord. Without thee, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 11. For context, I will begin reading in verse 25 through the end of Romans chapter 11, verse 36. The Apostle Paul writes, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election... They are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in time past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Dear congregation, our subject today was that diadem, that crown upon the Reformation solas, the five solas of the Reformation. Sola scriptura, sola scriptura meaning scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Namely, that crown is soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. It was the chief end. The glory of God was the chief end of that greatest of all revivals, which we call the Protestant Reformation. Why? Because it is the chief end of all the Scripture. The chief end of all the Scripture is the glory of God. That God alone will have all the glory. In the creation of all things, to God alone be the glory. In the salvation and the damnation of men, to God alone be the glory. In the collective and individual living of men and women upon the earth in time and space, to God alone be the glory. God's own glory is his own chief end. For it is, it is his chief delight. His people, being born again by his spirit, share in this chief desire. Namely, God's glory. That God would be glorified in all things. All of creation, every creature sings in Revelation 5.13... Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. We too should join in that chorus. And if we be Christian, we desire to join in that chorus of praising and lauding our God. Now, we do not confess soli Deo Gloria simply because the Reformation did. Rather, we confess soli Deo Gloria because the Bible commands us to. Amen. His glory, his weightiness, his power and honor is the constant theme of the Bible. It is the cause and the end of all things. It is the sum and substance of all his ways and works. It is his glory. And this is summited for us in our text today, specifically Verse 36 of Romans chapter 11. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. This comes at the end of Paul's didactic section. His doctrinal section in that most excellent of epistles, the epistle to the Romans. For 11 entire chapters... Obviously, there wasn't chapters back then, but the content of 11 entire chapters, Paul has laid out that man is wicked, that man deserves hell, that man cannot save himself, that he has fallen in Adam and has then, in Adam's sin, 
committed his own. That he has fallen, broken, dead, without God, does not desire God. That Jews and Gentiles are in the same exact boat. None seeketh after God. None desireth him. That God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Going into showing that it is grace alone. That as in Adam all men have fallen and sinned, so too in Christ all men are redeemed. The first Adam brought sin. The last Adam brought salvation and the answer to sin. Then he goes on. Shall we then sin? Because grace abounds. By no means. God forbid, he says, that we would see God's grace, that we are fallen, have no way of redeeming ourselves in ourselves, but God graciously and freely saves us, should not then lead us to sin that grace may abound. Why? Because we've been buried through baptism and death to ourselves with Christ and his death and risen again to life and his resurrection by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how has that balance worked? Paul then goes on to tell us that as we walk the Christian life, we will notice something, that there is the flesh still within us warring against our members. And the things that we want to do, the things that we would do, namely obey God, serve God, because our hearts are changed, our lives are saved, our hearts are made new, we don't do those things all the time because of sin within us. And those things that we once relished and delighted in, namely sin and serving self and glorifying self, we now hate and wish to not do them, yet we still do them. Paul says, I see that there is something contrary within me. There is a war within my members. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Ah, thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus my Lord. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Going on, showing us that the Spirit intercedes for us, that by that Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We mortify the deeds of the flesh. Going forward still, showing us that that spirit that mortifies also pleads with us to the Father, that nothing can separate us from Christ Jesus. No one, no sin of ours, no devil can bring a charge against us, for we are God's elect, predestinated, called, justified, and shall be, and even are now glorified. Then Romans 9. None deserve this. None deserve this. Only by God's purpose of election are any saved. Are any saved. And it is the grace, sola gratia, grace alone, that any are saved. Well then, we should go forth and preach. For how shall others hear unless the word is brought to them through a preacher? For faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do we balance then? the Jews of old, with the Gentiles of new. How was Israel saved, and now the Gentiles are saved? Did God cast off his people? By no means, God forbid, he says again. For there is one Israel, 
one tree. It is those who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, placed their faith in God and the coming Messiah and in the Messiah who has come, Christ Jesus. But there is one tree, those of the, the people of faith, the church, both the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. And that's where we pick up our text in verse 25. That these Gentiles being brought in, these Jews that were saved in the past, now these Jews are cut off because they don't believe. And we are grafted into that tree called Israel, true spiritual Israel, by faith, through faith. Then he says this mystery. What is that mystery he's referring to? The gospel. That when the fullness of time was come, God would send forth his own son, born of a woman, to redeem the world. To redeem his people, the elect, unto himself, by grace, through faith, doing away with their sins on that tree. Oh, that tree where the curse of sin was done away with. The curse for sin was laid upon our precious Savior's shoulders. What what shall we say to these things? Paul does something he rarely does. He begins a hymn of praise. In light of all this that I've just summated in the book of Romans, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. We shall look at the glory of God shown in two ways, and then draw some inferences or application from it. The glory of God is seen first in the creation. In creation. The glory of God is seen secondly in salvation. And then we will talk about how to live to the glory of God, number three. Living to the glory of God. The glory of God in creation and salvation and living to God's glory. First, the glory of God demonstrated in creation. The creation of the heaven and the earth, of all things, the universe, is first of God. It is of God. Meaning, the idea of creation. The fact that there even would be creation, there would be anything, was of God. It was coming out of him from his own mind. It's God's idea. Concerning the creation of the universe, of all that exists, we read in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's no mention of him consulting anyone else. For there was no one to consult. No contractor, no engineer, no scientist, no molecular biologist was brought in to add wisdom or structure to the creation. No help was given to God, for none existed to help him, and more importantly, none was needed. Of God alone was creation both determined and accomplished. Now this is a good thing for us, on a, for a multitude of reasons. But just from a beauty standpoint, it is a good thing for us. For the greatest artist who has ever lived, or shall ever live, could never have 
devised in his wildest dreams the beauty which we see in creation. Artists work from and draw their ideas out of what already exists. But God, the great crafter of all grandeur, of all beauty, and the perfect fount of all creativity, is the great craftsman of all beauty and all the pleasant sights which the visible world affords us. Think of it. Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes upon the richest of sunsets. We have some of the most beautiful sunsets in the world here in Arizona. With its cascading yellows, oranges, reds, plunging into the depths of hues and pinks and magentas, blues and purples. We've seen that. This is God's handiwork. Look to the great mountains, those great mountain ranges. Their sharp granite jets up into the sky and is cut in the deepest of valleys, green passing through them. This too is of God. The mighty sea with its foaming waves and its serene glassiness. It was God and God alone who filled them. If we lift our eyes yet higher. The pitch blackness of the night sky is studded with the sparkling gems. Those great giants so far off. They all declare to us his glory, his creativity. That they could come from a mind of man is unthinkable. The roaming beasts in which man takes so much interest, studies their body, studies how they develop and function in different ecosystems, were created by God. The human form, with all of its wonder, the human eye, is of God. Yea, All these splendors and countless more come to us of God. They are his achievements. None did or could have suggested such wondrous and such curious sights and designs as we see in the creation, but God alone. All of creation is of God. But it is also, secondly, through God. Through God. The Lord omnipotent took no raw materials with which to create. He didn't go searching through nothingness and stumble upon some raw material that he might use to make this creation. That itself would have been amazing. However, he did no such thing. Nay, all of creation has been worked through God's own creative and decorative power. It was God who created the heaven and the earth. Out of his own powerful decrees was the world fashioned. He spoke, and it was so. It was a work from which he rested on the seventh day, but a work which he alone did. Man creates ex rebus, from the things that are. God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. Principally, all these things were created through the Son of God. It's interesting, you ask most people which person in the triune God created everything. Well, it said Father. It's pretty common. But the Bible tells us it was Jesus who created all things. Jesus Christ, the word by which all things were spoken into existence. John 1, 1 and 3, In the beginning was the word. 
all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It was Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the divine trinity, through whom God made the world, we read in Hebrews 1, 2. Even more explicitly, perhaps, the Apostle Paul says, the gospel of God's unsearchable riches is preached by him in order to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3.9 By no power but God's. By no power but God's through Christ could the whole world be made. And through him all things were made. Each delight, each blessing, each beauty that we find and enjoy in creation, we owe to Christ's power. If you turn to Galatians or Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read this. For by him, Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So both in their origin and in their continuing, to Christ alone owe we the debt, owe we the praise. Now, creation is of God, through God, and also to God. Being the plan and decision of God, and being brought to completion through God in Christ, creation is therefore to God. The goal, the aim, the intent, the purpose of creation is the praise and glorification of God Almighty, the triune God. All of creation exists of him and through him and is to return to him. Namely, with an eye set upon what his purposes are and how they are to glorify him. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. All of creation, all of creation and our own uses or interactions with creation are to be unto God's glory, are to be unto God's glory. In other words, they're to be used according to his designs and unto his praise and thankfulness out of heartfelt gratitude to him. Now, this means something else, that all, all sin is a grievous transgression against God through the abuse of what has been made, of what he has created. So sin is simply the abusing of what he has created. Man uses his body to commit heinous sins against God's moral law. He uses his mind against God, corrupting it until it is reprobate. He uses the beasts of the earth to war against God and his commandments. He uses the naturally occurring substances of creation to sin against the Creator. He uses his own emotions and delight to commit iniquity against God. He uses his intellect to war against 
God. All of which man interacts with. His own body, the bodies of others, and everything in all of creation is abused by him. Can be and is abused by him in sinning. Man is a created being. He's stuck in a created order and must interact with it. And as a created being, he abuses that which is created by God against his intended purposes for them. The body was not made for sin. The mind not made for rebellion. The intellect not to be used in plotting against God in vain. The creation not to be used to further our own glory or sin. Yet we do. Therefore, dear congregation, let us keep in mind that all of creation, ourselves included, exist of God, through God, and are to be used unto God. So things like alcohol, cannabis, our reproductive organs, our intellect, namely any created thing, is not evil on its own. Rather, they are used for evil purposes by evil people. Namely, sinners, all sinners, use the created order in an abusive way. Their intended design and aim, which God gave them, is abused. Let us be careful and thoughtful that we use all which God has created for the good purposes that he intended them for, namely his glory and our enjoyment and delight of him. Second, The glory of God is also demonstrated in salvation. Salvation. Whose idea is salvation? It is not man's idea, nor is it man's work. It is God's. Salvation is of God. Just as no man planned creation, nor any man planned the fall, so too no man planned the redemptive work of salvation. No, not even an angel. Salvation is of the Lord Jehovah. Jehovah Tzedkenu, the Lord our righteousness. It is God's plan. It is his decree, his idea, and his work. If we look back to the Pactum Salutis, as we talk about a lot as Reformed believers, we look back to the pact of salvation, the pact of redemption in eternity, we see that the covenant of grace, the plan for the redemption of sinners, of the elect from their sins, is of God alone. Who, who could have conceived, dear congregation, who, who could have possibly conceived that God should die for his sinful creatures? It's unthinkable. It's barely speakable. That great plan of salvation was not drawn up by men. No man, no angel sat down and thought it out. It is not the concoction of priests in Rome, nor the invention of theologians. It was grace alone that first moved the heart of God and was joined with divine sovereignty in order to plan salvation. This plan was the offspring of divine wisdom. None but God could have ever imagined a way of salvation such as the one which the gospel presents to us. 
None but God. A way that is so just to all that God is and so safe to man. The very thought of divine substitution, namely a sacrificing of God himself on man's behalf, could never have suggested itself even to the most educated, the most intelligent of all God's creatures. But God himself suggests suggests it. God himself puts it forward, enacts it, and accomplishes it. The plan is of him. Paul writes of the hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Titus 1, 2. Jesus Christ is styled in competent Bible versions, unlike the ESV following the RSV, that liberal translation, as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The only verse in all of Scripture that explicitly tells us that Jesus Christ died and was slain in eternity. Well, how does that work? In the Pactum Salutis. When Jesus Christ said, yea and amen, when the second person of the divine trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, said yea and amen to the covenant of grace, the plan of redemption, he was as good as slain. That's how sure our salvation is. There was no way he could have failed. Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is God's plan. It is of God. Salvation was no mere reaction of God to man's sin, like many Arminians and open theists will tell you. Rather, salvation was the plan and purpose of God from eternity. From eternity. Which brings us to the next sub-point. Salvation is through God. Through God. Salvation is of the Lord. It is his work, as we read in Jonah. If salvation is to be had at all, it can only be had at God's hand. It is a work which comes through God's working alone. No human, no angel, no bull for the slaughter. No being in all of creation could or did attain the salvation of all who believe. Seems hopeless. If there had been any other way for salvation other than through Christ, Christ would not have prayed in the garden, Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Matthew 26, 42. Salvation was a work that could only be accomplished through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the God-man, Christ Jesus. He alone could undertake to save his people, and he alone did undertake for his people. As his own name signifies, Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means he shall save his people from their sins. All the necessary components of salvation, everything that had to take place, the timing of the Messiah's coming, the work he should do, everything that led up to it, Paul tells us, are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. God was in Christ, he continues, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. It is this way, dear believer, it is this way of salvation alone that is any true way of salvation. As Jesus says in John 14, 6, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And Peter echoes similarly in his preaching in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved than that of Jesus. So let us be careful, dear congregation, that we never, ever entertain any other means of salvation. Nor do we ever allow those around us whom we love or are sharing the gospel with to entertain any other idea that there's a different means of salvation than through Jesus. For us, as for all others, salvation is through God in Christ Jesus alone. No priest, no priest, no pastor, no good works, no Bible reading, no church going, only Christ. What does the prophet Isaiah say to the nation of Israel? The Lord speaking through him. Look and be ye saved. Look and be ye saved. That's it. Look. How easy to do. Looking to Christ by faith. How easy to do. Yet, how often forgotten. Even by ourselves on a weekly basis. How easily deceived we are. How quickly to trust in other things and thus abuse our sanctification. It's an abuse of our sanctification to treat our sanctification as a means by which we are reconciled to God or stand on strong footing before God. We have to know that. That you trust in the progress of our sanctification is to undo it. Is to undo it. Lastly, salvation is to God. Of God, through God, and to God. This river, this river of salvation, this river of life, has its outlet in the praise of God alone. Peter closes his second letter by showing the clear connection between our salvation and giving glory to God. In 2 Peter 3.18, he says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. So knowing that Jesus is our Savior, growing in the knowledge of him that is our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus, then should always should precede and be followed by glory to Jesus, glorifying Jesus forever and now. Our salvation is to have its end, its goal, its completion, its aim in the glory of God. For this is his own intended end for it, that he would get the glory. There is an intimate connection that cannot be broken without some great unhappiness befalling us between our salvation and the glory of God. In our salvation, we are no longer our own, are we? For we are bought with a price. Therefore, we ought to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's, 1 Corinthians 6.20. So do, we, do you see in Paul's words here, 
because we are bought with a price, namely we are purchased out of, we are redeemed from our sins by a price, the blood of Christ, we are therefore to glorify him in our body and in our spirit, which now belong to God, not us. The purpose of our salvation is not that we should remain in our sins, not that we should continue as we were, seeking our own glory, our own pleasure, but that we would live unto God, being daily sanctified by the Holy Spirit, namely, that we would live as a monument, an Ebenezer stone, to God's glory and salvation. Let us, therefore, see some practical ways that we can live unto God's glory. Third, inferences, application. Living to God's glory, how? A few ways. First, through personal communion with God. We forget. We forget, I forget, that I can go to God and spend time with Him and actually commune with the living God, fellowship with the living God, speak with the living God. If you cannot, what is this? Why are we here? What are we doing? It is nothing then. We can go to God. We have access to the throne of grace. We can commune with him. We can commune with each person of the Godhead distinctly and separately together as one God. We can go to the Father in prayer as the one who has adopted us, the one who cares for us, provides for us, and has decreed our salvation, that fount of all divinity, the fount of the Godhead. We can go to that God, our Father. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is now our Father, through what God the Son, Jesus Christ, has done. And the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, applies. So the Father, we go to Him. Thou carest for me, O Father. Thou providest for me, my Father. Thou hast decreed my salvation. And we fellowship and commune with the Father on those terms, and many more. The Son, and personal communion with the Son, the one who has demonstrated his love for us in dying for us, who has paid for all of our sins in his body on the tree, removing from us the curse and the punishment of the law, who has given us his own holiness, his own righteousness, allowing us to even approach God Almighty. We can fellowship with the Son, commune with the Son, Thank the Son for the specific things that He has done for who He is for us. The Spirit as well, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit of Christ, the one who has applied the work of Christ to us, the one who dwells within us, leading us into all truth, righteousness, and conviction of sin, the one who gives us the power to live unto God, We were not left as orphans by Christ, but he sent us his Holy Spirit, that unction. He gave us the unction of the Holy Ghost to dwell with us, lead us, guide us, comfort us, teach us. And we can commune with him 
on those terms. That's one way to live to God's glory, is spend time communing with God, the triune God, and each person distinctly. John Owen wrote a fabulous book on this topic. Holy living is another way in which we can glorify God. Holy living, meaning the daily mortification of our sin. Just as Paul in Romans 7 seemed that every time he turned around, the thing that he wanted to do, live unto God, glorify God, worship God, love God, he was hampered by his sin. This contrary thing within him. Warring against his mind and his heart. In holy living, we daily mortify sin. Mortifying means putting to death. How do we mortify sin? Paul tells us in Romans 8. Chapter 8, verse 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Through the Spirit. The mortifying of our sin, our inward sin, is nothing else but a daily cultivation of a growing hatred for sin and a growing love for God and Christ. The working out of our own salvation in good works. In good works. Good works not to be justified, but because we are justified, as I spoke on earlier. If you think of your good works, the things you do for God, your church attending, your Bible reading, your evangelizing, your putting to death sin as grounds for your justification before God and your acceptance with him, you then abuse and undo all sanctification entirely. We do not do these good works and work out our own salvation with fear and trembling to be justified, but because we are justified. Holy living out of gratitude. We live unto God in good works. We live unto God in faith, acts of faith and obedience, not servile, but filial. Not as slaves, but as sons. The means of grace. The means of grace is another way we glorify God. Meaning the reading of Scripture. The reading of Holy Scripture daily. This is where God, the triune God, speaks to us, teaches us, leads us, transforms our mind. Renews our mind by the word. He speaks to us there. Another means of grace. Prayer. Where we unburden ourselves before God. Where we offer thanksgiving and praise. Where we receive strength and grace. And when, where we commune in love with our Father through the Son by the Spirit. Another means of grace. Attendance at the public gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day, wherein we are together fed by the Word. We are fed together by the Word. We corporately sing praises and psalms and hymns unto God, where we offer prayers to Him for grace and truth, where we confess together corporately who Christ is, who God is for us in His Son, Jesus Christ, where we ask for strength and grace, where we fellowship with one another as one body united in Christ. How does all that glorify him? Because those are the things he's given us, the means of grace that he's given us, the things he has commanded us to do, so they glorify him. Another means of grace, 
the Lord's Supper, wherein we weekly, thankfully at this church, feed upon Christ in faith, having our faith in and love to Jesus, strengthened, increased, deepened, widened the heights, the depths of our love for Christ. Last way we glorify God, though there are many more, is evangelism, soul winning, preaching the gospel, wherein we fulfill the great commission, the work which Christ Jesus, our great God and our Savior, has given us to do. The bringing in of more brothers and sisters, the covering of a multitude of sins, dear congregation, the covering of a multitude of sins the participating in the work and will of God. It's one way as well to glorify God. Dear congregation, let us live solely in Deo Gloria. Let us live to God's glory alone. Let us use creation which he has made for his own glory as a means to glorifying him. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? Why does man exist? What's his purpose? What's the goal? Answer. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the heartbeat of not just the Reformation, not just the Puritans. I like those things. But the Bible. But true Christian living. If we do all things unto God's glory, we will find ourselves filled with joy and peace, and love. Therefore, let us live, as John Owen wrote, quorum Deo, soli eo gloria, before God, before God's face, unto his glory alone. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, We once again come before thee through the mediation of thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Ghost whom thou hast given us. Christ, Lord, let us see more of Christ. Help us to see thy glory as our chief end our chief delight, our chief enjoyment. See this present world, its delicacies and dainties and trinkets fading away in light of thy glory, O God. To thee, O Father, be the glory. To thee, Jesus, our Savior, be the glory. And to thee, Holy Spirit, be the glory. For thou leadest us comforteth us. We love thee and praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen.